Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. Hi, and welcome along to Gateway, to Church Online. We're thrilled that wherever you are, that you're joining us. Um, We're going to interrupt um, Chris's excellent series on the journey of a godly man and come back to the series that I had been doing before lockdown called What's That About? In that series, What's That About? I've kind of left a gap at the end of that little phrase and filled it in with concepts that relate to the end of the age. So we have talked about What's That About? Daniel 70 Weeks and then we did a couple of messages on What's That About? Israel. Today I want to continue the series and what's that about the book of Revelation? When it comes to talking about the end of the age, the book of Revelation, of course, is generally a key component in most prophetic scenarios. It is, for many, a or perhaps the handbook on how the end of history will be outworked. If you happen to have read the Left Behind series or the late great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey or any other volumes along those lines or speakers that take a dispensational futuristic approach to the end of the age, uh, you'll understand that the book of Revelation is crucial to their prophetic schemes and scenarios. Uh, Perhaps as an aside, I'm aware when I say something like I just did about those books and those messages that some people who adhere to the dispensational schemes would say that I'm being unfair in treating all dispensationalists as if they believed exactly the same things that are written in those books. I'm very aware that they don't necessarily and that there are all kinds of nuances Obviously, I just don't have the time to tease those all out. So this presentation may be somewhat of a caricature. However, I suspect it will be a very recognisable one. For many prophetic teachers and authors, the book, of chrono- the book of Revelation is a chronological unfolding of the events of the last seven years of church history. One commentator taking this particular stance said, the only proper conclusion is that we are still in the normal period of history and that the events which form the prophetic content of the apocalypse or the book of Revelation shall only come to pass when the end of the world is at hand. So perhaps if you're not familiar with these books, let me give you a thumbnail sketch of the left-behind interpretation of the book of Revelation. Now, as I say, I might not have all the variations exact, but I think it'll be close enough for you to recognise it. Most futurists are happy to acknowledge that the first three chapters of the book of Revelation relate well enough to the present age, but suggest that things dramatically change from chapter 4 onwards. Revelation chapter 4 verse 1 reads, Then as I looked, I saw a door standing open in heaven, and the same voice I had heard before, which sounded like a mighty trumpet blast, spoke to me and said, Come up here and I will show you what must happen in the future. Many futurists see that verse as the secret rapture of the church. So so John embodies the whole church and Jesus in the rapture comes for his church. From this point on, they would say that the focus of 
revelation is not on the church and that the church doesn't appear now uh, through the book until the remaining or the very last chapters. With the church now gone from the earth, we enter, according to this scheme, the last seven years of history, which, as I mentioned in a couple of messages ago, was apparently Daniel's 70th week. With the church so-called, uh, with the church gone, the so-called prophetic clock of God starts ticking again. A wicked ruler, demonically inspired and gifted, will arise and come to the fore and will win over the world with his policies and his charisma. He'll bring peace to the Middle East and he will make a covenant with the nation of Israel, guaranteeing their peace and security. The temple apparently will be rebuilt in Jerusalem. After three and a half years, however, into this seven-year period, this particular politician will show his true colours and will demand the worship of earth dwellers. He will enter the temple in Jerusalem and demand worship as God. As the scheme goes, he will be assassinated but will be miraculously resurrected. People will be completely won over and offer their worship to him. It seems that he will be aided and abetted in his schemes by a religious figure who is called the false prophet. A time of terrible persecution will be unleashed on those who refuse to offer him worship, and he will introduce a, a mark, a mark of allegiance that will be required of all, and without that mark, people won't be able to buy or sell. Apparently, there will still, however, be many people who will come to Christ during this season, and some see a, a, a powerful ministry that will flow from 144 Jewish evangelists. Two supernatural witnesses, many think Moses and Elijah, will minister in Jerusalem with incredible power. The Antichrist will kill them, but after three days they will rise from the dead and go up to heaven in the sight of all. And then God will pour out his judgments on the earth dwellers, but they still will not repent. Finally, Antichrist will gather the nations of the world and will come against God's people and against Jerusalem. And at this point, Jesus will return from heaven, this time with his church, and will defeat this wicked individual and all those aligned with him. Jesus will then set up an earthly kingdom in Jerusalem and will reign for a thousand years. They call this the millennium. After an unprecedented period of peace and prosperity, Satan will once again be released for one final fling. He will gather the rebellious nations of the world and once again they will come against God's people and his rule. Here, however, they will be firmly and finally defeated and it's then that Jesus will set up his eternal rule. That's a very quick sketch of the book of Revelation, Allah Left Behind. As I mentioned, there are obviously variations in different schools of dispensational and future, uh, futurist interpretations, but I, but I suspect that the caricature is recognisable. The question that I want to ask in this message is, is that the only or the best way to interpret the book of Revelation? Is that what the book of Revelation is really about? Uh, in brief, my answer is a definite no. I don't think it's the best way to approach the book of Revelation, and I don't believe that's what the book of Revelation is about. 
Now, I'm very aware, having studied it for many years, that the book of Revelation is not exactly a tidy book, at least not in the way we would like or expect it to be, and therefore it behoves us not to be too uh, dogmatic when we come to talking about its interpretation. I think it's fine to have an opinion, and obviously I have one. However, I think it's wise to hold it somewhat lightly. So, therefore, let us step lightly into considering another approach to the book of Revelation. Now, what I'm about to do, obviously, is of necessity a very brief overview of the entire book without looking in detail at its various portions. If you want to do a deeper analysis, then there is some very good literature on the subject that I'd be really happy to recommend to you. I don't think I get an argument from anybody in saying that the book of Revelation is probably the most difficult book in the Bible to come to terms with. When you're trying to understand a book like Revelation, there are some basic foundational questions that have to be answered before any serious study is entertained. And the first is to ask, what genre of literature is the book of Revelation? Um, the word genre is actually a French loan word, which means a kind of literature. So in asking what genre is Revelation, what we're asking is what kind of literature is this book? It's important because genre determines interpretation. You, you approach a science fiction book very, very differently than you would a textbook, a scientific textbook on, say, biology or chemistry. You read poetry very, very differently than you read history. So it's incredibly important to understand what kind of genre we're dealing with when you come to the book of Revelation because it will determine the way we interpret it. Is it simply history written in advance, which many people think it is? Or is perhaps it more like poetry? How should it be read? Again, obviously by virtue of time constraints, we're not going into details here, but as far as genre goes, I'd like to suggest to you that the book of Revelation is somewhat of a hybrid. It's made up, I think, of three kinds of literature. It's somewhat pastoral epistle, it's somewhat apocalyptic literature, it's somewhat prophetic literature. Perhaps we could say it is a pastoral letter written to Christians in Asia in the first century by and from a Christian prophet who wrote using apocalyptic language and imagery. So let me briefly just unpack each of those three genres that make up the hybrid revelation. Firstly, it's pastoral letter. Now, I think we're reasonably familiar with this form by virtue of what the New Testament is made up of, largely of pastoral epistles. I think in this form, John's goal is to bring encouragement to believers of that age and time and of all ages and times that God is working out his purposes even in the midst of tragedy, of suffering and of apparent satanic opposition. The main thrust of the letter in this form then is how the church is to conduct itself in the midst of an, a rebellious and ungodly world. Like all New Testament epistles, Revelation addresses the situations and problems of those who first received the letters. And yet, like the other letters, it speaks to the life and the history of the church down through the ages. It's spiritual and moral instruction, and not simply crystal ball gazing into the future. 
At the very beginning of the book, in chapter 1, verse 3, we're told, if you read this prophecy aloud to the church, you will receive a special blessing from the Lord. Those who listen to it being read and do what it says. Obviously, if it's just simply crystal ball gazing, what do you do to obey a future prophecy? Simply, there's nothing. So it's spiritual and moral instruction that John anticipates that we will be obedient to. If Revelation is only about prophetic um, direction and instruction that relates to the last seven years of history, then clearly it leaves the first recipients of this book and most of the rest of the readers throughout history with virtually no meaning or relevance in it. My conviction is, being a pastoral letter, John is speaking to first century believers to encourage them to persevere in the face of persecution that was already underway and was soon to intensify. The principles that he outlines will have relevance in every age and for wherever the church is persecuted. Secondly, Revelation is what we call apocalyptic literature. Now, we aren't particularly familiar with this form of literature, although the people of the first century were. There was a lot of this genre of literature circulating at the time John was writing. Apocalyptic literature sought to accomplish its purposes by using vivid, sometimes grotesque imagery and evocative, powerful emotional language. Perhaps the closest thing we have to apocalyptic language or, or literature in, in our day is, is political cartoons. If you saw a cartoon, for example, that had an eagle struggling with a bear in combat, you'd probably know enough to say that the political commentator was talking about the USA, symbolised by the eagle, struggling with Russia, symbolised by the bear. Now, clearly, the bird and the beast are symbols that we don't take literally. Literally, Being apocalyptic, then, the book of Revelation is filled with symbols. George Eldon Ladd says, The nature of apocalyptic language does not convey its messages in precise photographic style, but more in the style of modern surrealistic art with great fluidity and imagination. Richard Hayes makes the point, Revelation's visions are to be read as poetic symbolism rather than literal descriptions or predictions. Literalistic interpretations can lead, he says, to disastrous misinterpretations. And rather amusingly, Nelson Crable says, think symbol, think metaphor, think poetry. Don't get trapped in wooden literalism unless you really expect to get to heaven and find that Jesus is a sheep. Many futuristic interpreters uh, are convinced and contend that we should interpret Revelation's images literally except where context demands otherwise. I would contend that the exact opposite is the case, that the essence of Revelation is symbolic imagery. The language is predominantly figurative and it should be interpreted as such except where a literal understanding is required by the context. Symbolism isn't a denial of truth or meaning. It doesn't reduce the book to sim simple mythology. You know, when the eagle is saying, you can't hide your lying eyes, that actually communicates a powerful emotional truth. And to mumble about eyes not talking is actually an exercise in missing the point. 
So apocalyptic literature is much more like reading poetry than it is reading history. Thirdly, revelation is prophetic literature. Bible prophecy doesn't necessarily demand that it be about the future. It includes that, of course, but it isn't limited to or even primarily about future events. Biblical prophecy has much more to do with people being called to repentance and obedience in the light of God's present purposes. So the heart of biblical prophecy is not, this is what God is going to do, but in the present situation, thus saith the Lord. When, when you read prophetic portions of scripture, there is a really important concept that you have to keep in mind, and it's this, that prophecy is discursive. Now, the word discursive comes from the Latin language, and it, it literally means to run to and fro, or to pass irregularly and rapidly from one subject to another. To be truthful, a lot of the prophecy that you, a lot of the preaching that you've possibly heard might well be described as discursive. The prophetic literature of the Bible is discursive. It is not laid out chronologically or sequentially. It, it's not linear, starting with A, going to B, moving to C, and so on. You read any of the prophets, and you will not find a sequential chronological order to what they speak about. They jump around all over the place, and Revelation is of the same order. Austin Ferrer says, there is not a line in the book which promises us a continuous exposition of predicted events in historical order. Now the question might be, and often is, Don, if John isn't to be read chronologically, then why does he say things like, then I saw, and after this I saw? Surely that does suggest a linear temporal order. However, I'd want to say to you that what that does is it simply indicates the order in which John saw his visions. It is not what happened next, but rather, this is what I saw next. You might then say, well, Don, but doesn't that leave us with an absolute mishmash of events that cannot be meaningfully understood? And I'd say to you, no. Though prophecy in the book of Revelation is discursive, it is not without structure. I think there is a definite structure to the book of Revelation. It isn't just a meaningless jumble of events. But I want to suggest to you that its structure is not linear, chronological, or sequential. There is another uh, term, there's another form of interpreting the book of Revelation that's actually called progressive parallelism or progressive recapitulation. Now, big words, long phrases, but the easiest way to understand them is to imagine a spiral staircase. It doubles up on itself, repeating the same material, but from a slightly different perspective. So rather than going A, B, C, D, E in that kind of linear chronological sequence, sequential way. Imagine a spiral staircase where it goes up, slightly different and yet covering very much the same material. Uh, G.K. Beale in his brilliant work on Revelation likens it to a conical spiral. Leon Morrison, his says, it seems to be part of the method of John to repeat his theme. Not exactly. The same material is covered, but other perspectives are revealed and fresh facts of the revelation are brought out. I'm sure if you're 
somewhat familiar with the book of Revelation, you'll know that it has lots and lots of series of sevens. So there are seven seals, followed by seven trumpets, followed by seven bowls. If you're thinking about a chronological, sequential interpretation of the book of Revelation, then it's, it runs one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and so on. However, when you are thinking of progressive parallelism or progressive recapitulation, it's more like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one, two, three, four, and so on. I think the judgments, seals, trumpets, and bowls, are parallel descriptions of the same events, the same time period, covered from slightly different perspectives. There are scholars who have identified seven of these repeating cycles through the book of Revelation. I don't think it's coincidental that there are seven. John seems to have seven as a very favorite number. These seven cycles have a very similar pattern. They nearly all finish with judgment followed by salvation or salvation followed by judgment. Let me quickly take you through those cycles. The first cycle runs from chapter 1 through chapter 3. In these chapters, the letters to the churches, we see the glorified Christ in the midst of his church. Though these letters are written by John to historical churches in Asia Minor, they nevertheless contain warnings and principles that have value for the church of all ages and all places. So in a sense, we can say this material is for and about the church age. This first cycle is the only one of the seven that doesn't finish with the judgment salvation pattern. The second cycle runs from chapters 4 through chapter 7. This cycle begins with the lamb opening the scroll by, broke, by breaking its seven seals. In this cycle, we find the church suffering trials and persecution, persecutions all against a backdrop of Christ's victory through the cross. The end of the cycle vividly describes the coming of Christ and the end of history. Let me read it to you from chapter 6, verses 12 through 17. John says, I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red and the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in the caves among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can withstand it? Clearly, we are talking about the end of the age. That judgment theme is then followed by a salvation theme. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hand. And they cried out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb. So this cycle depicts the church age culminating in the second coming of Christ with both judgment and salvation. The third cycle runs from chapter 8 through chapter 11. 
the focus of this cycle is around the seven trumpets, and we see the witnessing church persecuted and trampled, and yet nonetheless protected and victorious. And like the other cycles, this cycle concludes with a clear reference to both judgment of the wicked and the salvation of the redeemed. Revelation chapter eight, uh, verse uh, sorry, Revelation eleven verse eighteen says, "The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth." Clearly, then, the judgment of the wicked, the salvation of the righteous, conclude that cycle. The fourth cycle covers chapters 12 through 14. The cycle begins with a woman giving birth to a son, a clear reference in symbolic language to the birth of Christ. The cycle depicts and the continued and perhaps intensifying opposition of the dragon and his forces to God's people, the church. The cycle, like the others, concludes with a figurative description of Christ coming in judgment. So Revelation chapter 14, verse 14 and 16, I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out from the temple and called out in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, take your sickle and reap because the time to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is ripe. I think there of Matthew chapter 13 verse 39 where Jesus explaining the parables said the harvest is the end of the age. We are clearly talking about the end of the age. So he was, he was seated on the cloud, swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was harvested. That's followed, as is the pattern, with salvation. Revelation chapter 15, verses 2 through 4. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire, and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its, and its image, and over the number of its name. They held harps given them by God, and sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations, who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name. For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Again, the cycle is the church age, concluding with both salvation and judgment. The fifth cycle covers chapters 15 and 16. This cycle focuses on the seven bowls of God's wrath, and it ends with a reference to a final battle, Armageddon, the last judgment. Revelation chapter 16, verse 18 through 21 says, There came flashes of lightning, rumbles, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on the earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones, each weighing about 100 pounds, fell on people. And they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. You have to read that also in the light of chapter 6 verse 12 and 11 verse 15 through 19, both of which speak of a massive earthquake, of thunder, of lightning, of hails, of mountain, of islands being shaken and all removed. 
If we take Revelation to be linear, chronological, and sequential, then we have three massive age-ending earthquakes. I, I, however, if we view it as a spiraled staircase, then what we are seeing is the same earthquake described in different ways. If you take it logically, chronologically, sequentially, then we have a number of second comings and final judgments. If we have progressive recapitulation, then we have the same period and the same events seen from slightly different perspectives. So this fifth cycle, like the others, is the church age followed by the second coming. Judgment and then salvation. In Revelation chapter 16 and verse 15, Look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. The judgment-salvation cycle following the church age. The sixth cycle covers chapters 17 through 19. This cycle describes the fall of Babylon, and I think Babylon is a symbol of the world's system in opposition to God and the structure and, and the destruction of the beasts that energize the system. Again, I believe this cycle has the church age and concludes with the second coming of Jesus with, with salvation. Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 9. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. So salvation, the coming of the Lord bringing salvation, and then judgment. Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The cycle of the church age again finishing with the coming of the Lord for both redemption and judgment. That brings us to the seventh and final cycle, which I believe covers chapters 20 and 22. Now, this might be a surprise to some of you, but I'd like to suggest that this cycle is simply a repeat, remember the spiral staircase, of all the other cycles. It describes a thousand-year period, sometimes called the millennium. But I'd suggest to you, rather than seeing that as some kind of thousand-year earthly reign of Jesus on the earth, Allah left behind, that like all the other numbers in the book of Revelation, thousand is also to be taken symbolically rather than literally. Bishop N.T. Wright says, should we take the thousand years symbolically? I believe we should. 
John has used all kinds of symbolic numbers throughout the book. It would be very odd if he were to suddenly throw in a rather obvious round and symbolic number and expect us to take it literally. I think a thousand years is simply a symbol of a long time, and I'm suggesting it's the same time that's covered in all the other cycles, the church age, the end of which sees the dragon and all those associated and aligned with him judged, thrown into hell, and God's people redeemed. Perhaps for those of you who have studied this material, you know that the position I'm suggesting actually is what's called amillennialism. Postmillennialism and amillennialism both believe that the thousand-year period is actually the equivalent of the church age. I don't want to bore you or those of you who aren't really interested in this material, so I don't try to, or I don't plan to outline or defend what I have just said in the position that I've just taken. I'm just stating it so that you would know. Again, if you're interested and would like to pursue it, I can recommend some literature that at least I, anyway, have found very uh, helpful. In this last cycle, we have uh, a tremendous uh, last battle. But we saw that last battle in the third, the fifth, and the sixth cycles as well. So in the third cycle, it reads, Revelation chapter 11, verse 7, when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends up out of the bottomless pit will make war against them. In the fifth cycle, chapter 16, verse 14, these miracle-working demons confer conferred with all the rulers of the world together, uh, to gather them for battle against the Lord on the great coming judgment day of God Almighty. In the sixth cycle, chapter 19, verse 19, then I saw the evil creature gathering the governments of the earth and their armies to fight against the one sitting on the horse and his army. And in this final cycle, it's found in chapter 20, verse 8 and 9, he, Satan, will go out to deceive the nations of the world and gather them together with Gog and Magog for the battle. The mighty host, numberless as sand along the seashore, they will go up across the broad plain of the earth and surround God's people and the beloved city of Jerusalem on every side. If the book of Revelation is linear, sequential, chronological, then possibly we have, in such an oxymoronic way of saying it, four final battles. Clearly, we don't have four final battles. Also in, the cycle, in this cycle, Satan is said to be released from the bottomless pit. We see that in chapter 20, verse 1. But in the sixth cycle, chapter 17, verse 8, we also read that he comes up out of the bottomless pit and then goes to eternal destruction. And in the third cycle, chapter 11, verse 7, he comes up out of the bottomless pit and attacks them. Well, there's at least three times Satan is coming up out of the bottomless pit. He doesn't seem to know whether he's coming or going. It's a bit like a jack-in-a-box that keeps popping up and going back down if it's linear and chronological. If it's the same event described from slightly different perspectives, then I'd suggest to you that it makes sense. Like the earthquakes, like the judgments and the second comings, there are either more than one of them if you take a sequential approach, or it is the same one described in slightly different ways if you take the progressive parallelism approach. That last cycle, as all others, finishes with both the judgment-salvation pattern. 
In verse 10, it says, Then the devil who had betrayed them will again be thrown into the lake of fire, burning with sulfur, where the creature and false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever. And verse 14 and 15, And death and hell were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire, and if anyone's name is not found recorded in the book of life, he's thrown into the lake of fire. So you have the judgment pattern, and then the remaining portions of that last cycle have to do with the new heavens and the new earth. And I would suggest to you that this is the final and complete salvation of the redeemed. So the first half of the book, chapters 1 through 11, the first three cycles, highlight the struggle of the church on earth, the church being persecuted by the world. The second half, chapters 12 through 22, the remaining four cycles, actually pull back the curtains, which is the nature of apocalyptic literature. It pulls back the curtains to give you another perspective, a supernatural perspective of what is actually happening on the earth. And what we see in the deeper spiritual background of the struggle is the persecution of the church by supernatural forces, by the dragon and the beast. I think these seven cycles that I've just outlined are parallel in the same way that the four Gospels, in a sense, are parallel descriptions of the life and ministry of Jesus. Each one brings to the table a slightly different perspective to contribute to the whole picture. If what I've suggested to you today is even close to being the truth, then the whole left-behind scenario is left in tatters. I would want to suggest to you that the book of Revelation is not primarily concerned with the last seven years of history. It is not Daniel's 70th week. In multiple parallel ways, I believe it describes the church age, concluding with the second coming, with the judgment day for the wicked and salvation for the people of God. In saying what I'm saying, I'm not being novel. I am not by far a lone voice in seeing Revelation in this manner. Ian Boxall says, In the apocalypse's cyclical pattern, the battle against the forces of evil and chaos are viewed from every conceivable angle and explained for every conceivable effect. But it is not a new battle. It is essentially the battle fought and won on the cross, replayed with shocking vividness. Now, some of you might be thinking, oh my goodness, Don, what on earth have you done to the book of Revelation? This is simply too much. You've gone from walking on thin ice when you did Daniel's 70 weeks to try and walk on water when you did Israel, and now you've turned into a deep-sea diver in this study. Had you all been together, or had we all been together, I probably would have arranged for the ushers to give out some Prozac as people left. Uh, I certainly would have cleared the car park of stones of anything larger than a two-centimetre diameter. I, I'm, I'm very aware I've probably raised some serious questions and possibly a few heckles as well. What I would suggest to you, though, is that you be like the Bereans that the book of Acts talks about in uh, chapter 17, who, who it says were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they studied the word with all readiness and they searched to see if the things that Paul said were true. They searched the scriptures daily to see if these things were true. Throughout this study, while I may have introduced some new ideas, part of the reason for it is simply to shake up 
the, the pattern that just so many people uh, buy into mindlessly, the left behind pattern, the, the late great planet Earth pattern. I mean, I, I did that. As a new believer, That the late great planet Earth was the book that I had beside my Bible. And for many years, by virtue of the fact that I hadn't heard anything different, I, I assumed that it was correct. Simply because there's a lot of voices saying it doesn't necessarily make it true. And in this series, what I'm trying to do is perhaps to make you think about some of these issues that relate to the end of the age. I've had some people say to me, Don, this stuff really doesn't matter. I'd like to suggest to you that, that it really does. For example, in terms of what I mentioned about Israel, it really does matter to Palestinian Christians. They, they have a struggle trying to understand why Western Christians support Israel, the nation of Israel, the, the secular nation of Israel, so unquestioningly while they seem to reject their brothers and sisters who are Palestinians. These things have consequences. Ideas always have consequences. So in doing this series, one of the things that I'm trying to do is to perhaps make us think, go to the Bible and study. If at the end of the day you come back to me and say, Don, I have really studied this issue and I'm actually committed to the dispensational left behind um, method of understanding the end of the age, then prime, then if you've done that study, then, then, then we can live together. Uh, all I'm saying is do the study. Be like the Bereans. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.